X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's March 27th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, we look at the impact of COVID-19 on county jails and on people experiencing homelessness. This city is supposed to be exemplary in terms of how we make a good place. It's, it's, what, it's what we're built for. And what we haven't thought about is the fact that so many people are left out of that equation. And what does it really mean? How can you call yourself a livable city when you have so many people, 4,000 at any given night, sleeping outside? Coming up on Portland's daily local podcast, the quick six headlines, a deeper dive of the impact of COVID-19 on people experiencing homelessness, and an interview with Portland mayoral candidate Sarah Annero. And first up, it's today's Quick 6 local rundown. Oregon has 317 known cases of the novel coronavirus as of Thursday afternoon, according to state and local health officials. Officials also announced one new death, bringing the state's total of known deaths related to the virus to 11. Washington has 3,207 diagnosed cases of COVID-19 and 147 related deaths as of Thursday morning. How are folks in jails faring? The Portland Mercury is reporting that a diabetic man has filed a class action lawsuit against Columbia County jails for willfully and wantonly dismissing the public health threat caused by COVID-19. According to the lawsuit, inmates sleep in four-person cells on two sets of bunk beds, rarely spend time at a distance further than six feet apart, and things aren't always sanitized. Meanwhile, Multnomah County jails are working to prepare for COVID-19. In Multnomah County, law enforcement has stopped admitting people to jail charged with misdemeanor offenses, an action that has halved the number of jail bookings over the course of a week. As of Friday, the jails were at 76% of total capacity. Almost unspoken is the question of whether Governor Kate Brown, the one person in the state with the power, will grant some clemency requests during the outbreak. People concerned about a cough or fever can soon call an OHSU COVID-19 hotline. Thanks to a $1.6 million donation from the Andrew and Corey Morris Singer Foundation, doctors hope the hotline will help people figure out what's going on and reduce the burden on healthcare workers and reduce the number of people who think they have to go in the hospital if all they need is information. Meanwhile, a new shipment of COVID-19 test swabs is expected this week, combined with additional testing capacity at Oregon hospitals. Governor Brown announced on Wednesday that Oregon received 4,000 testing swabs from the Department of Health and Human Services. That's HHS for federal government nerds. The shipment will help Quest Diagnostics fulfill a contract for 20,000 additional tests in Oregon. Brown says she's expecting to see testing ramp up with an additional 1,000 tests per day over the next few days. As of Wednesday, nearly 6,000 people had been tested in Oregon. The population of Oregon is 4.19 million. And shout out to the upcoming census. More hard decisions. The Metro Regional Government has announced layoffs impacting 40% of staff. Metro manages the Convention Center, the Portland Zoo, the Oregon Expo Center, and the Portland Five Centers for the Performing Arts. A bunch of places that won't be inviting people for a while. Metro joins a bunch of other employers activating layoffs. Last week, 76,500 Oregonians filed for unemployment compared to 5,000 initial claims during the week of March 8th. This number is part of the record 3.3 million Americans who filed for unemployment last week. The previous record was 675,000 back during the Reagan administration. Today, Congress expects to vote on the final package that will increase unemployment insurance, along with a bunch of other stimulus efforts. And from the Department of Beautiful Things, sometimes opportunities are clearer. 
Portland's Jupiter Hotel is offering 81 rooms to those with COVID-19 symptoms. They're pretty nice rooms. Don't fake it, friends. Multnomah County's Joint Office of Homeless Services is in charge of identifying people who meet the criteria. Each occupied room will cost the county a flat nightly rate of 79 bucks. The Multnomah County Joint Office is run by Mark Jolin, formerly the head of Join, and before that, recovering corporate lawyer from a fancy school. Join is now run by Katrina Holland, former executive director of the Community Alliance of Tenants, former bus project volunteer, and a partner in the Numbers.fm. Thanks for playing. Connect the dots. And here's one we can all do. Portland has asked residents to join a nightly cheer at 7 p.m., meant to boost the morale of frontline workers dealing with the pandemic. Portland officials said every day at 7 p.m., Beginning today, Friday, Portlanders should step outside their homes and cheer. The city statement said, use your pots and pans if you'd like. Include hashtag PDX thanks you to get the word out. And by the way, a note on gratitude. Gratitude can make you live longer. It can help make you sleep better. It can improve your mental and physical health. And we do far too little public gratitude. This is a good chance. What are you going to use at 7 p.m.? A kazoo? Your golden pipes? A guitar? Pots and pans? Time to choose, Portland. Stay tuned for our interview with Sarah Iannarone. Now here's a bit of our interview with Alex Zielinski of the Portland Mercury about the status of COVID-19 in our county jails. How are you doing, Alex Zielinski? I'm doing well. How are you? I am well. You have a story up now about what's happening in Columbia County with jails, with a lawsuit. Tell us that. Yeah, a couple days ago there was a I guess yeah Tuesday uh, a lawsuit filed on behalf of a a guy in Columbia County Jail which is um, a county that includes St. Helens so just a little north uh, west of here and uh, a guy with an inmate with um, he's 44 years old has diabetes has uh, a heart condition you know has uh, health complications that put him in kind of a high risk of being vulnerable to, uh, you know, serious complications from if he gets the uh, coronavirus. And so with the help of some lawyers, he filed a class action lawsuit against uh, the jail, against the, the sheriff, the Columbia County, County Sheriff, uh, basically saying that, hey, this, this, this jail is not following um, the just basic CDC protocols to make maintain um, social distancing space to make sure that everyone has uh, abundance of uh, cleaning supplies and soap and and face masks um, and uh, people like him uh, who are especially vulnerable to contracting this disease are uh, basically at, at risk of, of severe illness because of uh, the, the alleged kind of inadequacies within this jail. And so um, his lawyers are kind of looping, since it's a class action lawsuit, they're looping in basically anyone else in that jail who has any kind of, um, you know, uh, other illnesses or health conditions that put them in a high risk, which, you know, is such a wide range. Are there any respiratory issues, if they had cancer, if they're HIV positive, if uh, you know, it, it, it's blood pressure issues, any of that. So um, Columbia County has yet to respond, but it's kind of the first big action that we've seen, at least in the Pacific Northwest to, um, or at least in Oregon, to uh, to release or to, to demand kind of better conditions for folks in jails during a, a time when, uh, when something, a virus, a, a 
that the coronavirus can, uh, you know, whip around so quickly in small uh, in small facilities. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've been following what's going on at Rikers Island in New York, but there's been cases that have been just one case exploded into, I think, like 52 or 55 over the weekend. Um, and the uh, Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, is slowly releasing a few uh, inmates to, to allow for more space within that prison to, to comply with social distancing rules. But um, it's tricky. It's really tricky when folks are crammed in there. And, and Columbia County hasn't released anyone yet. Um, Washington County Jail and Multnomah County Jail have started to slowly release a few inmates who might be uh, nearing the end of their sentence um, or, you know, pre-trial. A lot of folks are in jail who haven't even been convicted of anything and just can't pay bail which has always been a problem, um, but now it's even more of a of a health risk to be in there. And so um, basically what, yeah, lawyers representing this, um, this man in Columbia County are hoping or demanding are, you know, start following these instructions. Um, they're not asking for inmates to be released necessarily, but just to um, yeah, what are they asking for? What is the, they're not saying, hey, clear the yeah. prisons. Are they just asking for certain folks to be quarantined, for there to be more hand sanitizer? What are they pushing for? Yeah, they're asking for, well, one of the big issues right now is that they're still asking for co-pays if anyone has signs of coronavirus within the prison um, and want to see, wants to see a medical doctor. You have to even pay, I think it's just a buck, but in prison that's a lot. Pay a dollar to communicate with a uh, with a doctor, with a medical um, staff member. There's just financial limitations that keep people from being tested. There's no, um, allegedly, there's no uh, doctors and, and um, medical staff aren't really wearing gloves or masks um, when they're interacting with patients who might have uh, those symptoms, which just puts them at risk as well. Um, and there aren't masks and, and kind of hygiene um, uh, hygiene supplies for people are enough for people who are staying in there. I guess only one bar of soap per person. Um, they're, they're, they're asking for um, public spaces and, and uh, cells to be better sanitized. Uh, there apparently haven't been any kind of like deep cleaning of the jail, which has, um, you know, kind of a lot of concerns. There are four people to a lot of uh, rooms still in some you know, uh, they're they're wanting folks to be more isolated from each other, and uh, for sake of their of their physical health, um, people are definitely not allowed much uh, much space between each other, let alone six feet space, which is kind of the social distancing guidelines from the CDC. So it's kind of a laundry list of like, hey, just please follow CDC guidelines. Um, so an organ inmate be prepared to to pay the price if people get gravely ill on yeah. your watch. An Oregon inmate has filed a federal lawsuit against Columbia County, and it's their claiming indifferent response to COVID-19. Alex Zielinski reporting in the current edition of the Portland Mercury. You can get it online at Blogtown. You guys aren't printing right now, right? You guys are all online. I don't want to spread fake news, but I'm directing people to the website. You tell <laughs> yeah, me where to direct Yeah, we're all online. People. No need to leave your house. Uh, yeah, just, just find us online, which means that we're... Uh, well, we love having a print edition. Right now, it's actually uh, a little bit more helpful just to be able to focus and kind of put the blinders on just the quick breaking stuff because there's so much of it. Keeping on jails for a moment, question we yeah. have, Alex, is Multnomah County jail system prepared for COVID-19? Yeah. Um, 
a lot of it's tricky because I mean with any of these news stories things keep changing every day or by the hour um, and Multnomah County right now um, the the last that I checked in is doing uh, its part to to try to like diminish the amount of folks coming into the courthouse diminish the amount of folks being arrested in general so they don't have to go to the courthouse and then eventually uh, making sure they don't have to end up in, in being held in jail for a long amount of time. Um, they're slowly releasing some folks who have been uh, held in the prison who might be, you know, a week or two away from their sentence being up um, in order to make more space for people in their prison. They've opened up, or in their jail, they've opened up one other dorm um, also in their Inverness jail, which is kind of the main one. Uh, to make space for inmates. And they say that they're, uh, everyone who's coming in is being placed in an individual cell, um, which is not what we're hearing in Columbia County. So, I mean, that's important. That's great. There's also concerns, though, like with anyone right now, with the, the mental health side effects of that, right? Being placed in isolation, being placed in basically solitary confinement in some ways immediately uh, is not great for someone's mental health. Yeah, um, especially they... because Multnomah County and every you know other county jails are suspending all pr- extra programs that go along with um, the jail, which are you know maybe um, Narcotics Anonymous or non or Alcoholics Anonymous classes or support programs for people with, um, you know, anger issues or, or other mental health issues uh, and just any kind of like social interactions. Like, you know, we're we're all locked in our homes right now and we already feel pretty isolated, but, but we can an call inmate, our family. Uh, we can, right. An inmate we can doesn't. Do meeting, but yeah. An inmate be, doesn't. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. To, to, to be in that scenario while in prison. I mean, to be fair, that's how that's how jail always really is. And it's something that we should be maybe talking about more now that we know kind of what it feels like to be in lockdown. But once you're in jail and to be even further put into isolation, uh, granted your, your health is, um, it's a priority physical health, but what that will do to folks, mental health is, you know, still a big question. No lawsuit in Multnomah County, anybody asking for additional changes to Multnomah County jail systems. Yeah, there are definitely, um, there's a group of uh, civil rights kind of organizations, including the ACLU of Oregon and the Oregon Justice Resource Center and I think Disability Rights Oregon, a few other groups that are asking uh, for not just Multnomah County, actually the entire state uh, and uh, that, you know, both prison and jail systems to um, really better prepare and better uh, be aware of the repercussions of kind of how that how everyone's triaging uh, the you know the crisis within the courts and within in the jail systems right now um, and same kind of things just making sure that I, I think a big thing is just making sure that all of these facilities are being really transparent about what's going on a lot of folks are scared that there is uh, coronavirus being transferred or um, transmitted, um, you know, within these jails and no one's really talking about it. There's no tests there. It's, you know, it's a microcosm of kind of what's going on in the outside, but a little bit worse because there's, um, there's, you know, a lack of transparency, an added lack of transparency. And so, um, yeah, there's a number of, uh, of these criminal justice and kind of civil rights advocacy groups calling for, um, 
just more transparency and more access. And at the same time, there are some activist groups locally who are calling uh, to, to release a lot more prisoners than um, than have been so far within the, the county jail, just to make sure that there is um, an ability for people to even attempt to practice uh, social distancing and, 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 you know, cleanliness. Is law uh, enforcement... Is law enforcement uh, is law enforcement doing anything? Are they changing any practices about admitting people to jail? Yeah. So right now, at least in Multnomah County, all um, law enforcement uh, officers, including you know Portland Police, Gresham Police, uh, Multnomah County Sheriff deputies, they are only arresting and charging or booking people into jail right now who have. Um, charges that are more than just a, a misdemeanor, so people with felony charges, people with, you know, uh, violent assault charges, things like that. Um, right now, if they're, if someone's stopped for um, a misdemeanor, they're just being given kind of a, a complaint, or not a complaint, a, um, a uh, they're basically being said, hey, here's a note, you've done something wrong, come back to court when all this, you know, shit settles down and then you'll be charged for kind of what went on. Um, so it's more of a, a warning system than a, um, you know, you're going to be booked in jail kind of system, uh, which, you know, is allowing police to kind of, it's both allowing them to prioritize um, uh, more serious arrests and crimes, but also to keep them from having to bring more people into the criminal justice system as a whole and just keep space between other folks. Alice Galinsky, anything else about prisons that you think people might be missing? Um, no, I don't right now. I think um, it'll be interesting to see. We've been pressing the governor to make a decision on, you know, if she's interested in granting clemency to anyone in, in prison during this kind of emergency. And she's really the only one in the, in the state who has the power to do that in a sweeping and broad way. Because um, right now we're talking a lot about jails. We're not really talking too much about prisons. And the prison system um, is equally, uh, you know, under uh, duress because of this coronavirus. And so um, if, she, if the, you know, the governor is up to her to kind of decide, hey, these a certain amount of folks are should be kind of protected from um uh, from getting this disease, we're going to allow some people nonviolent arrest to be to be released, or people who are especially vulnerable. Um, so that, we're thinking that might be something coming down the pike. Well, Alex, we appreciate you very much. We're talking to Sarah Anarone. This is part two of our interview. She is candidate for Portland mayor. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you, Sarah, for being with us. Uh, been talking a little bit about how you win this race. Being an incumbent is hard. It hasn't been tried for a while because the last couple of incumbents, in fact, the last few incumbents, didn't run again. How do you beat an incumbent, or do you think it's easy now because everybody's just used to having one-term mayors? Oh, it's not easy at all. We're working seven days a week and far too many hours in each one of those days. We have to build a vision for Portland that as many people as possible can buy into and reinvigorating our democracy and making Portlanders feel like their vote, their participation, their five or 10 or $15 is going to make a difference so that they're invested in being a part of this 
is what's going to be critical. And we have this thing that we talk about in our campaign, which is it's not enough just to win this election. We've watched what happened as people like Commissioner Udaley gets elected by a thin margin and then struggles potentially on some things to govern when she's in there because it's very hard to transform existing institutions and power relations. What I'm hoping to do through this campaign, bolstered by public financing, this would be very difficult without public financing, but because of the public financing and the public financing match, what we're able to do is engage people in very meaningful ways to say, yes, your $5 contribution to this campaign is meaningful, it's enough, it's actually $35, which funds an entire afternoon of pizza for, right, a group of people who are stuffing envelopes. And now- Does it afford TV? Does it get you? Does it get you on TV? Or in an internet age, do you not need TV ads? Can you do it all by giving money to Mark Zuckerberg and by knocking on doors? Our strategy does not involve a lot of TV. Yeah. It involves a lot of direct voter contact. It's going to be extensive canvassing in untapped pockets of the city. It's going to be we're using some of the most. I feel a little old. I haven't used to be feeling old until you have a team of all millennials and younger who are laughing at you because you use the word Rolodex and they think it's an app for Android phones. But it's this notion that we are going to Is use- Is it an app for Android? Uh, yeah, don't even ask me. <laughs> I was talking to a salesman. Come on, he knows what a Rolodex is. So, um, But it's this notion that we're using all of these tools, these direct voter context tools that are, uh, that are integrated with the voter data, that are integrated with social media, that are integrated with the marketing networks and analyses so that we're connecting with voters in meaningful, targeted, direct ways. And that's so what does that look like? That looks like people posting on Facebook, I really like Sarah Anarone. That means you guys doing campaign videos and boosting them. What does that look like so you get it at scale? Because I used to have arguments with campaign staffs who would underinvest in field and underinvest also in social media, right? And one of the reasons, I think, was because they got a cut of the deal on mail and they got a cut of the deal on TV, Right. But I will also say as a candidate, when I did TV ads, a lot of people saw the TV ads mm -hmm. and there was value there. But, I, you know, you're running a campaign now. It's, the social media landscape has changed a lot in the last eight years. What does it actually look like? And when you think about um, the likely primary voter, which you know as well, it is a lot of mail. We do have a lot of—we're already sending out mailers all the time. So there's a lot of direct mail. There's targeted direct mail. It's by who do you donate to? Who do you listen to? Who do you support in elections? What are the issues that matter to you? I'm talking a lot with voters um, by mail already. We're talking to them through social media. We're getting a lot of earned media. We, we've put out a lot of really good policy. I have a podcast. I have a website. It's sarah2020.com, and you can visit it. But there are extensive policy packages there where you can look, and we've crafted that with community members. So we're getting into the community and talking and building the coalition and creating the information relays and the community relays and the house parties. Um, sometimes I do two or three in a day. We host a community conversations. It's an aggressive grassroots campaign, very traditional on the front end, but on the back end, very data-driven, strategic, targeted messaging. What's the biggest critique you hear? Maybe you already said it, but what's the biggest critique you hear about the current mayor when you're out either on the doorstep or at one of the house parties you're doing? It doesn't make, it doesn't look like in four years anything's gotten better. Things look like they're getting worse. What would, I can ask Ted his response to that. What are the things that concern you most that have gotten worse? Portlanders are losing their spirit of optimism in the sense that this is a special place where good things that happen get that can transform how cities work in amazing ways. 
Like we are a second tier city that should be largely unremarkable in terms of our economy, our population. But because we when you say second tier, what do you mean? Like not as good as other places, or just not as big as other places? Like objective economic standards in terms of when they look at you know we're a small, we're like the twenty sixth largest, twenty fifth or twenty sixth largest city in the U.S. And I love that about us. This is a place where we're still at a scale where we have a robust enough economy to make strategic investments for our future. And yet our population is not so big like Los Angeles or New York, where it's hard to scale up. We can do things here that transform the lives of Portlanders. But I also understand that we have this outsized reputation around the world. People look to us to lead. And if I put sharrows on the ground jargon. Those are the little arrows that say this is where bikes can go alongside cars. You put those so there people, places aren't strodes? Yeah, we put sharrows so you don't have strodes. That If you put that down and call that cycling infrastructure, then, you know, the governor's office from Guam comes here and they take those home and they put those in and they think, look at what we've done. We's done like Portland. This city's supposed to stand for something. This city is supposed to be exemplary in terms of how we make a good place. It's It's what it's what we're built for. And what we haven't thought about is the fact that so many people are left out of that equation. And what does it really mean? How can you call yourself a livable city when you have so many people, 4,000 at any given night sleeping outside? Like, why are we not tapping into the community potential? When I look at a church up, the Nazarene church up at uh, Powell, where it crosses 205, and they're trying to build 15 tiny houses, and the city of Portland's trying to charge them 20,000 in impact fees. And I think we should be giving them 20,000 to get these people off the street for the year. Where's the disconnect? I believe that Portlanders want to do better. I believe I've mobilized my so let's community. Stick with housing center. for a moment. Let's let's stick for let's stick with housing for a moment. And the and you said homelessness. I said housing. They're related to different things. Yeah. Uh, and how that connects to this idea of Portland being an exemplar, that Portland being a say, hey, we're supposed to figure things out here. Well, this is actually supposed to be a laboratory of like place development. And we're supposed to figure it out, not just wait for somebody else. And we sure as heck shouldn't be lagging behind. It's kind of embarrassing that we got some real crap that we don't seem to be making progress on. That's a, that's a legitimate case to run for mayor and to serve as the mayor. What would you do differently? What were your critiques of Ted's or what would you do now to impact housing? Because it's like, well, we'll add another $50 million to the pot and build a few more units. You know, that's one answer, but maybe there's a better one. You have to look at a across the spectrum of affordability. And the biggest complaint that I hear from people out in the streets is affordable, like with a capital A, like the housing and urban development says this amount of families. officially affordable. Officially affordable. Let me, I can pay for it. And Portlanders are saying, that doesn't even come close to what I can afford. So wages aren't keeping up. We haven't thought carefully about the ecosystem, if you will, of housing in terms of what are the transportation costs that a family has every month. That's $400, $500 maybe for a family. Well, for people who are living close in, that's lower, right? So why are we not thinking about increasing density closest to the core? Well, in part, we've done it in places where we can, but then we've allowed this NIMBYism, right, to go unchecked in terms of, yeah, not you can build that over there, but not here, right? Why is the Eastmoreland golf course, right? Why are we not allowed to think about well, maybe part of that should be housing because we actually spent $1.65 billion in transportation close to the urban core. We've got a light rail line station that goes right there. But yet East Moreland doesn't have to have multifamily housing. That's a conversation that has gone unchecked when really the mayor of Portland should be saying enough. We need multifamily housing here. 
and we need a lot of it, and we need it fast. We've allowed the nimbyism to drive the conversation about urban development, and we're having these fights that are taking four and five years, like residential infill and better housing by design, trying to update and make sure that the comprehensive plan has enough housing for everyone, and everyone's to look at East Portland. Well, East Portland is not the most efficient place for us to put all the new housing. That's a long way from town in terms of it's trying to get people. Long way from services, long way from jobs. It's expensive infrastructure. Do you realize how many gains we could make if we put a lot of housing within three miles of downtown? It's a huge climate action driver. And if someone's going to call themselves a climate champion, you can't talk about being a climate champion than not talk about housing density adjacent to the core oh, in places it, that are— time. Well, it turns out you can. It turns out you absolutely can talk about a climate cha- champion and then mostly build infrastructure for cars and then build housing wherever the heck in suburbs. I don't know if it's congruent. Well, I don't think you should be able to do that because <laughs> hypocrisy fair. is That's bad. Fair. So <laughs> the— uh, how do you, if you're going to name the three biggest missed opportunities that this mayor has whiffed on when it comes to housing, when it comes to building more dense housing near the urban core, right? Was it, well, he didn't wave his magic wand to make that happen. He didn't use the right pixie dust. What were the missed opportunities? It's not just about pixie dust. I mean, that makes it sound like I'm being unreasonable and don't understand how policies get uh, made. That's not what I said. Well, in some ways it is because as someone who's been on the other side of that dais fighting for these housing policies for three, four, five years, some leadership from the mayor's office in corralling the votes and helping shape yeah, that's what's what going I'm on what the, the council. What are, the, what are the missed things? What are the chances that he could Take have? Some, do some leadership. Talk to your colleagues. Figure out what they need and want so we can get some anti-displacement up front. Let's think about the things that our people Proposals need and Proposals were want. made that didn't pass because, you th- because the mayor didn't use the lever of his office sufficiently to get them it's passed? It's not even about that they won't get passed. They're going to get passed because we always beat the mayor regardless of him. He's not been either there, here, nor there. He's an obstacle to us doing things faster when he's not helping. For me, what I want to do is actually help the people of my city move things faster that are going to be pro-social and have a benefit in achieving our goals. I believe that the activists in housing and transportation have the answers. I don't, but I know enough to listen to them and then empower them so you can get in and get out of here as fast as possible instead of jamming things up on just through complete lack of attention to what's happening. The you made reference to NIMBY's blocking uh, urban infill and density efforts. Are you concerned that moving to district-based elections for city council, moving to either a strong mayor or an unlocked bureaucrat to run the whole city, would increase, and then district-based city councilors, would increase balkanization, would increase sort of neighborhoodism when it comes to each city councilor saying, I don't need to worry about the whole city. All I got to do is worry about my own little neighborhood. I think we need to have a careful conversation about this as a city. I actually argued with Mark Zussman, who's the publisher of Willamette Week, editor, I guess, who both now, I think. Is he both? He said to me, Sarah, you're so strident on so many policies, and on this one you seem to equivocate. Why is that? You must be BSing me because you, you, you're you know-it-all and everything. Why do you have uncertainty around this? And it's partially what you're talking about. We have to be very careful with the commission form of government reforms so as not to jump out of the frying pan into the fire, I think. And what I want us to do is use the charter review process to deliberate around the future of governance in our city. And you can look, I put actually a policy online, uh, sarah2020.com slash goodgov, that talks about thinking critically through um, some of our, what is the role of neighborhoods? 
in decision-making. What is the role and how will city council do decision-making? What should a mix of district representation versus as l- at-large representation look like? We should probably examine the feasibility of a consolidated government between Multnomah County and city of Portland. It's something that doesn't come up a lot, but it actually seems to me when you're thinking about in this era where increasingly local I want to say localities because I can't say a city, it's a city and county, but where local places are looking at limited resources, especially from our federal government, we don't know what's happening in 2020. We don't know how this is going to work out. We know that our state is saddled with trying to think things through like education and healthcare. Does it make sense for us to have a consolidated government to help with things like public safety? housing and infrastructure. No, by the way, this is maybe the favorite answer I've received on this question, because to me, it is more complex. It's a trickier thing. And and my bad answer, your answer is better than mine. My bad answer is it doesn't matter as much if you move, if you change the form of government, but you don't do something else to ensure that we are, in fact, not balkanized. If you change neighborhood associations, but do, don't do something to make sure we are taking real citizen input and giving citizens real power, yeah. then what you're doing is, you know, reform change is not really reform. Yeah. Uh, what should I have asked you that I didn't? You need to ask me, I don't know. Oh, yeah. D- rethinking public safety. Let's talk yeah. about that. Let's talk about the police. Because right. you, you Say, can't have a conversation about the mayor's office and not talk about the police. It's absolutely fair. I was going to ask you what bureaus you'd run and the and presumably one of the police bureau. Give me your there been there's been conversation. And this will be our last one. Uh, there's been conversation about changing the culture in the police bureau since Neil Goldschmidt was a city councilor and named it as a top priority when he was running for mayor. Okay. That was when I was like a small child. Now you're running for mayor. People have still been talking about it. Yeah. What would you do to change the culture of the police bureau if, in fact, you think it needs to be changed? I do think that the culture of the police bureau needs to be changed. And I think in part it comes from our city but we have to make a commitment that this is going to be something similar to recycling where it takes us a generation, right, to make these changes over time. We have to build the plan. Until China stops taking our recycling and then we have to, sorry. But I'm thinking about the bottle bill and 20 years ago when we started thinking about these things, we knew that it would take us a generation to work through these transformations. You can't say we're going to be anti-racist and have a city that's a sanctuary city. That's That's a smart point. So what are the one or two things we need to do right now? I believe community oversight with teeth is what we need. As the DOJ leaves town, we need to see that as an opportunity to craft truly, um, I use the word formidable, but community oversight with real teeth. The police union should not get to have the final say in how policing is done in the city. The police union should get to to advocate for their workers, but we should be able to fight as Portlanders to be able to get rid of bad cops. If we cannot get rid of bad cops, then we will never ever build trust in so our police. So the police union won't endorse you. How is that impacting your relationships with the firefighters union? Here's some of the nerdy stuff that people can get here. One of the things that has been worked out is that the firefighters union, police union like to move together. And candidates in Portland, you know, might want to go after the police bureau, but we usually want to have the support of the fire bureau. How are you managing those politics? I actually really am happy about things like Portland Street Response, and I'm thankful for Commissioner Hardesty's leadership on that and the fact that we could potentially be using our firefighters more effectively without their arms, right? The fact that they're unarmed public safety people out in the community, thinking about if our fire bureau was operating more efficiently on things like addressing the health aspects of the of the needs of people out in Portland, right? The, um, the Portland Street Response model that's up in Lentz and how maybe we could be expanding that. 
potentially, so that police, armed police, aren't the first responders when people call 911 automatically for people in mental health crisis. I don't like when the police show up on scene and then 13 seconds later, someone in mental health crisis is dead. Yeah. No, um, huge. It, it, the data is striking, right? The percentage of calls to police or mental health phone calls and the calls to firefighters that are fire calls. Do you know that stat? Here's a fun stat for you. Do you know that one? What percentage of calls to the Portland Fire Bureau are to put out a house fire? Uh, less than one percent. I think last time I saw it was three percent. Okay, and maybe it might be less now. I don't know, but it you know the fire bureau now is mostly healthcare delivery system. Yeah. What's your last word? My last word is my name is Sarah Ianarone. I believe you should vote for me for Portland mayor. Visit me at sarah2020.com and uh, learn more about me and my policies. And I do encourage you to support this campaign because if anything, we've got a chance as Portlanders to get that guy out of office and get a people's mayor in that seat. And that's part two of our interview with Sarah Iannarone, candidate for Portland mayor. This is your daily local news podcast, The Local, your hometown in 30 minutes. I want to say thanks to producer Miranda Selinger, editor extraordinaire Will Romy, writers Nina Dabit, Joey Palchuk, Jamie Zangwill, and Emily Gilliland. And I'm Jefferson Smith. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for getting a little nerdy.